0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link
1: in the show description to support now. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe.
0: To find out if it's right for you. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime,
2: LGBT thriller.
0: You have now entered the house of mystery with your host, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KTV, 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside,
3: and 105.0 AM Palm Springs.
1: Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Isn't that exciting? You're supposed to be cheering. Yay! That's <laughs> well, I can do. It. Sorry. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's tough on Monday morning. And we're and, and, and that's Mr. David Ross Martini. <laughs> or Martini Rossi. It? Yeah, Martini Rossi. Hmm. And we're, we're glad you're here on Labor Day. You are working. I, I know. Nobody works on Labor Day. I know, this is crazy. Just out, I, see, guess, I guess, guess you can't call what I'm doing working, right? No. Well, we're <laughs> dedicated. We are so dedicated are. to the listeners that uh, here we are, and we're doing a couple today. We're, we're, we're busy, we busy. we day be long working are. for you. We're rocking and rolling. Well, you are. I'm, I'm ready <laughs> for bed. Uh, <laughs> we've got a, a really interesting fellow. Now, he's written over 60 books, mm. and he's sci-fi, fantasy, and all that, and he loves the most exciting thing to do is he loves to walk the streets of Regina. So, so keep, keep an eye out for her. Mr. Edward Willett, thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah. I
1: I see that. You like to walk around and tell You know, actually, I didn't – Regina is where you're doing that, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's where I've lived now for uh, a very long time, 30 years. That's true. For... It's,
1: it's much prettier than I thought it would be. I've never been to Regina, and, and for some reason I never – Thought about going ever? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's well. That's not mean it's an <laughs> offense. But I just never, I never thought. Oh my God, it would be beautiful. Let's go to reach out. Not negatively. I just it never came up. That's all. I,
2: I would suggest that this time of the year is a better time than say January, February <laughs> timeframe. Although I hope to be out there with my my little gimbal, walking around and showing people what it's like. It. Yeah. I might, maybe not at forty below. I might not go out, but it. Twenty or thirty below, I'll probably still be out there walking some. So. <laughs> wow, that's crazy! Uh,
1: but but it, it was—I will say—it was this very pretty neighborhood area. I was I was quite surprised, and I guess that's—I'm trying to give a compliment, but maybe it's not
2: working. It is—it <laughs> is, it is a lovely place, and we have the West Canada Center in the middle of town with the art with the artificial lake. There is like the largest urban park in North America, I think. Wow, one of the largest, larger than Central Park in total probably safer too. <laughs> not as not as rectangular it's much more yeah. <laughs> strung out along the river but
1: yeah well that's not a good word to use <laughs> <laughs> Strung
2: out
1: along the river. Strung out. <laughs> come to the park it's strung out on the <laughs> river <laughs> boy you'll be busy um well no actually so that's interesting so now you so you're canadian so you grew up did you grow up in that area then too or
2: well i'm actually a uh dual citizen i was actually born in silver city new mexico way down close to the border, hmm. and then we lived in Texas, and we moved up here when I was a kid, and I, I went to university in Arkansas, so all my, all my kinfolk tend to live down in that part of the world, <laughs> um, but I've lived up here, first in Weyburn, which is a smaller town, about 10,000 people, about an hour yeah. south of uh, Regina, and then moved here uh, in the late 80s, and have lived here ever since. Wow, so, so
1: wow, you escaped <laughs> I won't say that. Um, well, so, uh, now, how did you, what, what was it that led you into writing science fiction and fantasy
2: and, and this sort of field? Was there,
1: well, you know, abducted by I aliens have, or something?
2: No, not exactly. Well, unless you consider my older brother's aliens. Um, <laughs> they were the ones who kind of got me into it because I grew up in a house where, not surprisingly, uh, where we, uh, <laughs> where there's a lot of books. And uh, my older brother's, we're reading science fiction, and fantasy, and I think the the first book I can remember reading in the field, and I actually have it around here somewhere. That old paperback was called "Revolt on Alpha C" by Robert Silverberg, and it's a novel he wrote when he was nineteen, overachiever that he is. And uh, it, you know, I still remember reading that and getting really interested in science fiction and fantasy from a very early age. So the first time I tried writing a short story was something to do on a rainy day with. With a friend of mine, I don't think he ever finished his, but I finished mine. I was 11 years old, and it was called Castra Glass Hypership Test Pilot." So you can see that my course <laughs> was set very early on, and I just stuck with it. I wrote, um, I, I showed that to my um, uh, grade eight uh, English teacher, Tony Tunbridge. We called him Tony the Tiger, but not to his face. <laughs> and uh, he he did me the honor of taking it seriously. said, you know, I don't understand why your aliens act the way they do, and this didn't make sense to me. And I've always credited that with making me, you know, I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to write something better next time. So I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I wrote three novels in high school and uh, just kept going. I didn't actually study writing. Um, I was smart enough to know you can't actually make a living at it right off of that, if ever. So I went into journalism, and that's that was my first 8, 12 years of actual working life uh, eight years as a journalist and then five years as a communications officer for the Saskatchewan Science Center, which was what brought me to Regina. So wow. I did all that journalism stuff, and I, edited and I ended up as the editor of my hometown newspaper at the age of 24. <laughs> I did that for a few years. So I got all that, you know, real work stuff out of the way, and then uh, a long time ago now, coming up on 30 years, that I uh, became a full-time freelancer. Wow. Well,
1: what is it in um, the stories, like when you put them together, how do they come for you? Like, where is it? Do you just get an idea in the middle of the night or are you? uh...
2: Yeah, they can come from all over the place. Um, I recently put out a short story uh, collection called paths to the stars. And as I was writing that, I was looking at the stories and trying to remember where they came from and writing little intros to them. And it's often been, it can be an image. Uh, In fact, the book that's just out star song uh, is very much built around an image of this kid in a kind of a, run downtown, but he's looking through the fence at the spaceport and the starship's pointing the way to the stars. And that's, that's almost the central metaphor for my entire writing career, I think, is being that prairie kid looking at the stars and wanting to go there because I'm reading books about going to the stars. And the only way you can get there is in books. Uh, so that was an image that brought it to me. Um, uh, one I wrote called uh, Andy Nebula, Interstellar Rockstar. Uh, was uh, inspired by an exhibit at the Saskatchewan Science Center on how memory worked. And we had this exhibit of uh, – they were they were paintings that a fellow had made from memory of the town where he grew up in Italy and then left before the Second World War. And then he went back and took photographs years later to see how well he'd remembered it. So I got to thinking about how memory works, and I came up with, well, what if you had an alien whose – their memory worked differently? And then I combined that with a news item I'd read about uh, – Teenage pop stars in Japan who were one-hit wonders and then were wrapped up at the you know at the age not wrapped up, <laughs> uh, burned out I guess at the age of fourteen, uh, and I even had holographic performers in that book and of course that's actually a thing now so so it can come from you know things I've read it can come from images it can come from the good old what if. Uh, question, which is at the basis of so much science fiction, you know, what if aliens landed tomorrow, to use an obvious example? Well, so it's, at,
1: what if yeah. is part of today's science? <laughs> well,
2: it, and it is how science works as well. So yeah. it literally, and when I do my own podcast, uh, The World Shapers, where I interview other science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process, that's one of the questions I ask them. And I think the the best one I got was from David B. Coe, who said that. Uh, Ideas are like neutrinos. They're everywhere, and you just have to be dense enough to stop a few. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: there you go. What is is the science fiction world like nowadays to to the publishing world? Um, How do you like it? And, and, um, Uh... you you know, like I see a lot, well, (laughs) only because outside in. I'm I'm a true crime writer. I do all this nonfiction stuff. So when I look at a world like this, I always kind of wonder, how people interact in that world, like in sci-fi and fantasy. And there's so many categories. You know, like Dave's been trying to explain the categories to me because (laughs) I get really confused because to me it was just, there's just one category, sci-fi, but no.
2: (laughs) No, it's it's full of genres and subgenres. and I think more than ever, and that is the change in publishing. There was a time when, uh, even when I was a kid, you could probably have read every science fiction novel published in a year. Um, through the big publishers at the time. Well, of course, the big publishers have combined into fewer publishers. And um, meanwhile, publishing, independent publishing has exploded and and e-book publishing has exploded, which means that there's a subgenre for whatever your particular particular interest is. You can probably find a book uh, that appeals to it. But at the same time, the field is now splintered in a way that it wasn't uh, you know, back in the, the golden age, in the 50s and, and 60s, of when, uh, when you could have read everything that was being written. And there were far fewer people writing it as well. So right now it's like, well, it seems to be getting harder to make an impression on the market because, uh, you know, trying to be discovered is very difficult. Um, I'm fortunate I'm published by Daw Books, which is one of the major science fiction publishers. But uh, even there, especially like the mass market paperback thing has pretty much collapsed and been replaced by ebooks. So uh, they're not even doing a mass market version of some of their books, including my last book for them will never come out in that smaller paperback version. Wow. Um, so, you know, things have changed in the years I've been involved and, uh, I, I kind of wish I was writing in the 50s, but I could have been, if I could have been one of those, you know, me and Asimov, that would have been great. But <laughs> now there's so many of us doing it and it's, it's always a challenge, but I keep, I keep writing because what else am I going to do? Yeah. Well,
1: you know, it's just, I, I, I wonder if, if the big, you know, ebook explosion is going to like die down, so to speak. I, I wonder if it's going to calm down over the next 10 years or so.
2: Uh, I don't know. I doubt it. Well, I think, but
1: won't a lot of people realize that they're, you know, a lot of the self-publishing people, and I'm not slamming because there's good and bad everywhere, but there's just a lot of people I see that just sort of put out whatever, you know, non-edited, homemade covers and kind of, you know, you're kind of like, ooh, you know, and uh, if they're not going to make any money and they're not going to be very successful, um, won't that sort of calm down, you think?
2: I would like to think so. Um partly because that whole issue of discoverability is one of the problems is with that huge whack of stuff that's out there all the time, uh, trying to make yours, which of course I think mine is better than most of that huge whack of stuff, but we all think that. Um, but trying to make yours rise up like a diamond rising from the sludge uh, is difficult. Uh, and so hopefully it will die down. But I, you know, if I had a crystal ball, uh, I would have made a fortune by yeah. taking advantage of it before now.
1: Well, you know, maybe jump from a building like bungee <laughs> bungee from uh, bungee cord from some high rise, naked and holding your book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I I don't think me bungee jumping naked is going to sell anything. I just I just don't. Well, they'll sure <laughs>
1: talk about it.
2: <laughs> well, maybe. they would. Yes, you know.
1: And then they go, oh, he's a writer. Oh,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, I better check that yeah. out.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know, I'll, I'll take that under advisement. Okay. <laughs> hey,
1: uh, we are. I'm here to help. I I only want to <laughs> help
2: people. You know. You know. I'm
1: all about that. Um, well, it's really interesting that the whole concept of sci-fi. Um, how how far do you go in sci-fi? Like, do you create your own worlds and that? Like through fantasy, or you? Do you like to take the the real world and work with it?
2: Uh, I do both. Um, I tend to write more far future than near future. Um, but at the same time, I've written uh, present day fantasy. I have a series called uh, The Shards of Excalibur, a five book young adult series that actually uh, starts in the aforementioned Wascana Lake here in Regina when the Lady of the Lake shows up there because everybody's got to be somewhere. So why not? <laughs> and uh, And that's kind of that's a quest story to find the scattered shards of Excalibur all over the world. And so that's set in the present world. So I got to do, you know, I was setting things in New Zealand and France, and uh, my budget did not allow me to make research trips to those places. So <laughs> Google Google uh, Street View was my friend. Uh, but that was very much taking advantage of the real world. And yet at the same time, I've written fantasy novels set in entirely made-up worlds. Uh, and then, of course, the far future worlds where sometimes they are they have roots in the present day and you're looking forward and what it might be like after some things happen. Some of them are so far future and often other worlds where earth barely even matters in, in those stories. So I like it all, basically. (laughs) There's a lot of subgenres that I've written in and quite a few of them actually.
1: Well, when you're, when you're writing in, in future times, um, are, are, are you kind of hopeful in your writing? Or you? Is that why you you tend to go more future?
2: Uh, I'm I'm I think so. Uh, I always feel like I am, and then when I look at my plots, well, there was that book where I wiped out pretty much ninety percent of the population of the planet with the plague, so you know. But the overall, at the end of it, it was hopeful. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I, it it's story, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's. It's whatever the story demands, but I tend not to write tragedies in the classical sense, you know, everybody dies at the end. Um, uh, They may not exactly be comedies, although my next book is, I am calling it a humorous space opera. Um, But at least I think there is a sense of hope and a sense of, at the end, I hope people will will feel satisfied uh, the way that I wrapped up the story.
1: Do you ever have like a theme under the story? or something you kind of hope that people pick up from how it goes?
2: Um, I think the themes arise, I've told this story, there was a (laughs) book I wrote called The City Born, and I was two-thirds of the way through it when I finally figured out what it was really about on that level, Uh, because I had the story, but I was trying to, as I developed the characters and they interacted with each other, I realized that it was about something that I hadn't, set up front but it emerged so for me I think themes are kind of an emergent property of my my stories as opposed to something I typically start with as something I want to explore yeah so I, I I'm not preaching anything but at the same time I obviously have my own way of looking at the world and my own things beliefs, which will things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a good writer with these big words. Yeah, uh, things and stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that things and stuff kind of makes its way into the final, whatchamacallit. That's, that's how it kind of works for me. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at my characters, you're, you're going to get some sense of, and I think what keeps coming through is that I'm very much about individuals and make, try, individuals making their way through the world and trying to do the best they can and trying to make the best decision they can to make things work out better for them or for the people that they care about. And then because these are novels, it all goes horribly wrong along the way. Hopefully at the end, some of this attempt to make the right decision actually results in a satisfactory conclusion.
3: When you write your characters, I was just wondering, um, uh, can you hear your characters in your head? I know I hear voices, so
2: (laughs) I always tell Al that. (laughs) That I hear music and there's no one there. Uh,
3: exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean okay. they. And again, I think characters, no matter how much. And I, I'm not somebody who writes huge character sheets ahead of time. I'll make a paragraph note or something, mm-hmm. and then as the characters talk, they they develop themselves, uh, and pretty soon I I hear them quite well in my head. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: Do you See, walk I'm
3: not crazy No,
1: well, you are but, um, You walk down the street and you talk to your characters?
2: Uh, no I walk down the street <laughs> and I think about my characters <laughs> Of course I'm, I'm doing these walking things in Regina yeah. every day so yeah. uh, I'm, I'm literally walking down the street Talking, well, it looks like I'm talking to myself. I'm really talking to, you know, like the two people who are following me live at any given time. But uh, <laughs> I am still muttering to myself. So <laughs> I could certainly <laughs> talk to my characters as I walk down the street, and it wouldn't be any different from what I'm doing now.
1: <laughs> no, no. It could be. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, now, your newer book, your, your book called Star Song. Um, now, I see that's considered a young adult outer space adventure. So what is the difference between young adult and regular space adventure? Uh,
2: It just really has to do with the age of the characters. uh, is basically the only thing that seems to define young adult. Um, I suppose the age of the characters and perhaps the concerns of the characters. You can certainly have an adult novel that has young characters in it that wouldn't be considered young adult. Um, So typically I think young adult has to do with, you know, growth and development and finding your way in the world and all those things that, you know, as teenagers, we're, we're right. trying to do. Uh, I've always thought that the reason I tend to write young adult is because I started writing so early, and I've sometimes said that my character I grew up, but my characters never did. So uh, I think it's still me as a teenager is in my young adult characters. There's no question about that, because we all have to write what's in our own heads. Uh, so in this case, the characters are about 16, thereabouts, uh, the two main characters, they're also adult characters as well, and it is very much about this one young man who's um, his, his guardian is murdered. Uh, the only thing he has from his parents was something that she had given to him Which is this mysterious musical instrument called the touch fire. and he knows That it came from off-planet. He's been raised on a planet. He doesn't belong on And so he has to, he takes this instrument. He goes to the spaceport He wants to find his way into space and he wants to try to find out more about his parents and his family and what this thing is, because it clearly is more than just a musical instrument and it turns out to be an alien artifact and there's really powerful people who would really like to take it away from him. And that's kind of where the plot <laughs> hangs. But the it is very much in his case it's a going it's it's almost the archetypal journey because he literally starts living in a tiny farm and then he makes his way to the city and then he makes his way into the into the larger world and finds himself along the way. So in a way it's a very archetypal uh, hero's journey almost.
1: Wow, yeah. Yeah, I always wondered because I see a lot of young adults out there and I'm just kind of wondering. I thought maybe they were like free Britney people or something like that.
2: You <laughs> <No. know>? <laughs> <laughs> it's really just a genre that was, you know, it didn't used to exist. You go back to when Heinlein was writing what we would call young adult novels because they had teenage characters. They didn't have anything called young adult. They were called juveniles back then. But then teenagers got all full of themselves and didn't want to be called juveniles anymore, so we gotta do what called and they didn't want to call them teens for some reason, so they call it young adult. And then there's a category called new adult, which is like college age. And then I guess I should be looking for old adults at this point, but (laughs) I'd like some senior citizen fiction. That's yeah. what I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah, that's <laughs> it.
1: Yeah, they come back. Well, that's crazy. So now now these particular characters, how did you create these people? Or did you find them at a coffee shop? or When you were <laughs> out walking the streets, you saw them somewhere?
2: It's a very difficult question to answer because I wrote this book 30 years ago, the first version of it, uh, in the early 90s, late 80s, actually mid-80s. It was one of the first books I ever wrote and tried to get published, and it came within a hair's breadth of being published by a major publisher in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, and the publisher, well, the editor there told me the publisher had died and his son, first thing he did when he took over the company was say, we're not publishing that science fiction stuff no more. <laughs> and so she was ready to make an offer on it and it fell through. And I, until now I, have never found a home for it. So I, I published it through a press, which is my own publisher. Um, but, uh, It started with a short story before that, one of my very first short stories I ever sold called The Minstrel. And so asking me now where the character came from is a little difficult because I was 20-something and I'm not anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I do know is, as I said before, is that metaphor of the kid looking at the starships and wanting to go to the stars. So I guess that's where the character came from. That was basically me looking at the stars and wanting to be able to go to them. And so I guess you'd have to say Chris Lamarck, who's the, the character, I, I think he came from me. And then the other main character, Tavera, is a girl and I didn't know much about girls probably when I wrote that short story originally, so <laughs> I don't know where she came from.
1: <laughs> Some nasty girl that threw, threw rocks at you or something, right?
2: No, I actually got along really well with girls. I got along better with the girls than I did with the boys in my class. When you
3: write characters, have you ever had a character do anything to surprise you?
2: That's a weird question because, <laughs> for me, and I know authors talk about being surprised, but mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not surprised because by the time you get to the point, they may do something that's not in the synopsis or in
3: the, mm.
2: you know, your, your plan, but it's not a surprise because by the time you get to the point where they do that, that character has become whoever they are in your head through the process of getting to that point. So it's, it can't be a surprise if they go off in a direction different from what you originally planned for them uh, because it's been incremental getting up to the point where they go off in that direction. So unless unless you were just literally writing by the numbers, and I, I still don't see—I know authors say that—and I don't understand how you could be surprised by anything your character does because they're coming out of your fingers as you type. So
3: <laughs> I, I just know I had a character show up in another novel; he just like appeared.
2: <laughs> yeah, weird. well, I yeah, I, I guess I guess it is a surprise in that way. I think I think what it means is that it's something that you didn't originally plan for, but it yeah. happened as you wrote the story. Uh, it's more like a divergence from the original path, mm. but uh, not a surprise in the sense of, you know, your fingers suddenly typed something and you didn't. It, it,
1: that's that's yeah, possessed. <laughs> it's Yes. <it's still>, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Crazy. Um, I, 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 but you know what? When you write something like this 30 years ago and you're dealing with this now after you've lived a long time, The actual story itself changes from the original.
2: Uh, The story didn't change, but the writing changed. When I went back to look at it, and I'd actually revised it lightly a few years ago, uh, you know, as I kept trying to get it published, but I went back and looked at it, and I thought, why the heck do I have two main characters, and I only use the boy as, I guess it's because I didn't know anything about girls, the boy as the (laughs) viewpoint character, and I realized that the story would work way better. If uh, it was alternating viewpoints between the boy and the girl. And so that was the main big rewrite that I did. Um, but the plot itself is not significantly different from what I wrote way back when.
1: Wow. I, I would, I, I don't know. I mean, that's crazy. Because I, I would think where your head was at 30 years ago um, or even longer would have been someplace completely different than how it is where it is now
2: I don't know you know I mentioned the the short story collection paths to the stars Um, there was a reviewer that said she assumed she'd be able to tell which ones I wrote in like 1982 and which ones I wrote in 2018 and uh, she See any, you know, there was no obvious difference there. I, and when I read them, I thought, yeah, I would still write that pretty much the way I wrote it then. So, I don't know if that's good or bad. Does that mean I have not grown as a person? And yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I'm still that 16 year old who started
1: this process. You're stuck in your basement, <laughs> thinking it's 1982, and it's not. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go.
3: With the pace of technology today, do you ever find it difficult um, or does it create difficulty in writing uh, science fiction?
2: I think it creates difficulty if you're writing near future science fiction. Mm. Uh, Once you throw things far enough into the future, you can do whatever you want. Um, And even if technology that you think should exist because it's coming along now is not there, there's always, oh, yeah, well, there was that thing, you know, the asteroid hit back in twenty. 22 and uh, that you know we lost all that technology we used to have there's always ways to work around it if you put it far <laughs> enough in the future um up close i don't i think yeah i think it, it's almost impossible to actually imagine but then again science fiction is not about predicting the future and it's usually you're focusing on one aspect and you're exploring to see what if this thing changes how might that change things in the future hmm. uh, but you look at things like uh, CRISPR, you know the the genetic um, modification. I just saw there's a new simpler version of it coming along to make it easier. Uh, And, of course, uh, space with uh, the way SpaceX is going and some of those those things is completely different than we imagined it at one point. And, of course, the computers. And we live in a science fiction world. I mean, this is the science fiction world from when I was a kid. If you told me what we have now, I would have thought I was – I'm sitting here looking at this computer and my cell phone's over here, and it's more powerful than (laughs) – you know, so yeah, it is. I think it is difficult to if you're trying to accurately predict the future, um, but it's always been like that. I mean, science fiction, even in the golden age, they would write something set you know, in the canals of Mars, and then like <laughs> next thing you know, we've got a spacecraft circling it, and oh, look, there aren't any canals. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't really change the story because it's still the story that's important, and we can still read stories that are set in. The jungles of Venus, and enjoy them, even though the science turned out to be completely wonky. Hmm.
1: No, it could be true. We haven't been to the moon.
2: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we
1: haven't been anywhere, so don't don't worry about it. That's all.
2: Well, it is only 1982 in my basement, so I don't know what's going on out there. <laughs> Nothing. Don't worry
1: about it. Do you ever write series of books as well in science fiction?
2: Not a lot, but I've well, I've started some, um, and I've mentioned the five book. I don't know if you call that a series. It was, I guess it's a pentology, <laughs> uh, the Shards of Excalibur series. Um, I have a trilogy uh, written as E.C. Blake, which is one of my pseudonyms, the Masks of Agreement trilogy. And then uh, I have three books in a series called World Shapers, but Daw is not taking the fourth book. So that's effectively a trilogy, except I'm going to write the fourth book and put it out myself. So I guess that's a series. And then the new one I'm writing, which is called The Tangled Stars um, We'll probably start a series, but the thing with series is they only go until the publisher says you know the either sales support it or they don't. Um, so you never know when you start a series if it's going to be a series or not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, w- I wonder. Do you outline the whole thing ahead of time? Do you sort of have all books kind of figured out how you're going to go?
2: Oh no, no, no. Um, I know in the World Shapers series, I know how it ends. But it was always designed to be open-ended so that if it continues, if I keep writing it myself, um, it could go on for as many books as I wanted to write because it's literally a um, – they call it a portal fantasy. It has science fiction underpinnings. But anyway, the characters move from world to world, and every world is different. And uh, it's, it's set up so that it could be an, an endless series of, of books. Um But I do know how it ends, so that end point is there. You have to have that because to work toward or your books will, your series will rapidly get out of hand if you don't know where you're going. (laughs) (laughs) And the big challenge in series is continuity. Um, I've been on a couple of panels about it with series writers, many more books than I have in series, and it's it's always a challenge, you know, Mm. because when you're writing, you tend to throw away some little detail. And then five books later, you think, wait a minute, I described the color of that thing back in book three, but I have to go back and find it. If you're George R. R. Martin, you probably have a staff to look at mm. the continuity for you.
3: <laughs> well, I'm wondering, too, you know, you, um, you read a lot of uh, short fiction as well. Do you, do you feel that you're a, um, a natural short fiction writer, a natural novelist? Do you have uh, a preference for either one?
2: I actually write very little short fiction. I feel like it took me my entire career till now to get enough stories together to put out that short story (laughs) collection. (laughs) And some of those were unpublished. So, um, yeah, if if I get out one short story a year, that's probably as much as I do. And I I think I have more affinity for the longer Mm. form. Um, Even when I'm writing a short story, it's like, oh, I could keep developing this.
1: (laughs) So when you're doing these um, set in a far world, you you must make that other world and future um, a character in itself.
2: It it's I suppose yeah. I mean your setting is always it's not a character, it's your setting, but it does influence the characters. And with when you're making up an entire world, um, there's so many things you have to think about. Yeah. Um, you know, you you change something about the way the world works and, well, how would that affect this, that, and the other thing? Um, World building, of course, is a great topic of conversation among (laughs) science fiction, (laughs) fantasy writers, and readers. And if you go to conventions, there's always panels about world building. Um, and, uh, And my podcast is called The World Shaper, so I suppose I've done my share of talking to people about it as well. Uh, but work. yeah, I, I mean, character, the the setting influences the story, so in that sense, I suppose it's a character. Sure.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Do you ever um, have a book that you um, have written that you've gone want to go back to and you'd like to change it or do something different with it, but you just never have?
2: Um, yeah, maybe. Um, but you're always working on something new, and you you know. So what I've done is, if I do something through my own publishing company here shadow Paw press and i'm reprinting something and usually what i most of what i put out has actually been books that were published by somebody else and then they just for whatever reason i've killed several publishers uh metaphorically uh, literally <laughs> I was say, wow. um, and maybe i wanted to kill a few publishers but anyway <laughs> um those books become available and so that's a lot of what i've been putting out and i don't i haven't done major rewrites on them but i certainly have gone through them again and fixed the line here or there or you know so a little bit of tweaking but i haven't gone back and completely rewritten anything i think if i were going to do that instead of rewriting the original book i would write another book that was like a an alternate take on the same on the same events or you know from a different point of view or something like that i think i'd be more likely to do that but i don't have any plans to do that
1: yeah yeah so what is edward's um process of writing? Like, how do you do you set time up where you're going to write like, you know, from six to eight this day and that day? Can you just turn it on or just does it just have to, uh, you have to do it when it the feeling's there? Like, what, what's your process?
2: Uh, I procrastinate for as long as possible. Right. <laughs> uh, and then I just sit down and do it. I, I do find that I don't work as well in my house as I do if I'm out somewhere, which admits you know, I always I thought when the pandemic happened, well, I work at home anyway. But in fact, I found that it, it did seem to kind of cramp my writing because I was just so sick of being in the house and I wanted to go to a pub or I wanted to go to a coffee shop or something and I couldn't. And uh, so recently my writing seems to have picked back up again because I can go to those places again. So, uh, um, but no, I don't set a set time. If, if it's a day, because I have so many other things I'm working on, I do editing and I do. Um, you know, podcast, and I do this, that, and the other thing, and I have the publishing side of things, marketing, and blah, blah, blah. So it's sort of when I do decide to sit down and write, probably for about a couple of hours at a time, and if I got a couple of two- to three-hour sessions in a day, that would be a good writing day. When I am writing, I'm quite fast. So I've done 50,000 words in a week, and I did... I've written a 100,000-word novel in a month, so I know I can put it out fast if I'm really focused on just the, the writing. But, I, yeah, I'm not organized is what I'm saying.
3: <laughs> I see that you're um, a professional actor as well, and I was just wondering if that has informed or changed your approach to um, creating story and creating characters.
2: I think that stage experience has been very helpful in a couple of ways. One is that the process of creating a character on stage is very much the process of creating a character as a writer. I mean, as an actor on stage, you're, you're, you're bringing somebody else's character to life, typically, unless you wrote the play, too. Um, but still, it's that, that getting inside the head of the character and understanding why they do the things they do and how they move and mm. you know, all that stuff. I think that's helpful. So the acting experience, I think, is helpful. I think it helps with dialogue too, uh, maybe in a sense of what works and the pacing of dialogue because you get a lot of experience on stage with that. Then as a director, which I've done, I find that's very helpful as well because one thing as a director, you're always aware of the picture that you're creating on stage and where people are in relationship to each other. And if somebody's looking out the window, you have to get them over to the, you know, what's their motivation for <laughs> going from the window to the fireplace on the other side? Although my favorite of that was the director I know who said, somebody asked him, you know, what's my motivation for moving from there to there? He said, your motivation is that I'm employing you and I'm telling you to move from there to there. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's your motivation. But, yeah, I think that helps that, that sense of where people are in relationship to each other because one thing I find when I'm working with uh, new writers or wannabe writers is sometimes there's this kind of amorphous thing in the scene where nobody, you can't tell where anybody is and you have an image of them somewhere and they're suddenly somewhere else and they didn't tell you how they got there. Uh, and I think uh, being a, having that experience of acting things out and having other people act things out on stage is helpful in keeping scenes clear on the page.
1: Interesting. So, if, if, if someone's never heard of you, what what I, I don't see how, but um, <laughs> what, what book would you suggest they start with when it comes
2: to, to your writing? Oh, gee, that's a tough one. I get asked that, and I, I never quite know what to say because it's, I, I write in the multiple genres, right? right? So what are you looking for? Uh, I wouldn't point somebody who has no interest in young adult to the Shards of Excalibur series, but as a young adult reader, I'd say try the Shards of Excalibur series. Um, or, or Star song that's the new one. Yeah, yeah try that oh, one. There you go. <laughs> now you can. <getting>. For, <laughs> forgot, forgot what I was publicizing there. Um, on the adult side, uh, if you want a standalone, there's a book called The City Born, which is one of those rare things, a standalone science fiction novel. Um, but the one that I won an award for was called Mars Seguro. It won the Aurora Award for Best Canadian Science Fiction Novel. and So that's a good one to point people to, I think, sometimes. Uh, so there there's some suggestions. Uh, uh, I don't have a one answer to that.
1: Yeah, no, I you know, you have so many books too, right? I, it's yeah, you know. Um I wonder. So what what do you think one of the best or the best science fiction book ever written? Oh, <laughs> go for it. Pressure's on. We're all
2: listening.
1: No. I, That's Well, we'll just one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I can't answer for all time because there's too many of them. And I have in fact, I, I, you know, I I read less than I did when I wasn't writing. Um, I read fewer novels than I once did. So I'm not even particularly up to speed on the latest and greatest things right now. So for for me, it always goes back then to what was the most influential for me. And that always goes back to Heinlein, I think. And I would probably, I like. You know, all the juveniles are very important. So the ones that probably made me a writer were anything he wrote in that vein. But the one overall would probably be The Moon is a Harsh Mistress mm. I think. as the most influential for me personally. Uh, and looking at the other big names from that era, I never liked Foundation, uh, Isaac Asimov. I never cared for those. I liked his Robot stories. But I never uh, never really warmed up to the Foundation series. All this shows you just how old I am, because these are very (laughs) old books at this point. (laughs) And if we're going to do the big three, Arthur C. Clarke would be the other one, and uh, Childhood's End is probably the one there. Look those up in the museum. They're still there somewhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) From last century.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So so at this point, where do you see yourself going? You know, you've got 60 books under you, and – and um, where do you see yourself going? You're going to continue writing sci-fi and fantasy and all that, or are you going to go somewhere else with a different type of writing? Uh,
2: I, well, I, I'll continue writing science fiction and fantasy. As a full-time freelance writer, I will write anything for a buck. So, <laughs> you know, make me an offer. Um, and, I, yeah, I'll continue. And on the publishing side, um, I, uh, I put out two anthologies now of, well, the second one's about to come out called Shapers of Worlds, which are uh, short fiction by authors who were guests on the World Shapers podcast and huge names in the field in both of them. I'm just finishing the second one now. It'll be out uh, next month or in November, I think. And so on the publishing side, I want to do more that's not just my stuff. I, you know, I've, I've published a couple of books that aren't mine. There's the anthology I published in a, a, uh, my grandfather-in-law's First World War memoirs called One Lucky Devil. And I would like to get to the point where I could perhaps bring out some original fiction by other people. So I think I see myself doing a bit more publishing, but I will certainly continue to write science fiction fantasy because that's – I don't know how you stop. <laughs> you to <just> stop. <laughs> no, go. and something that people often say when I, I ask that similar question on the podcast is, because I'd go crazy if I didn't write. You know, the voices in my head would, mm. you talk about hearing voices, right. the voices in my head would drive me mad if I didn't <laughs> get them out and put them on papers.
1: Oh, there you go. It's all on tape now. It's all we <laughs> have you. Um, now let's talk about where where you want people to find you and stalk you and hunt you down. Do you have like a, a website or a
2: street Do address, I have phone number? I have multiple, multiple websites. <laughs> I do have a street address, but maybe I won't share no. that. Um, my main website is edwardwillett.com, so it's just my name, .com. The podcast is at theworldshapers.com. Um, the publishing company is at shadowpawpress.com. Shadowpaw is, named, is, our, is our, our cat, so <laughs> <Shadowpaw Press>, is <laughs> his picture is the logo. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at ewillett and at the theworldshapers and at shadowpawpress. And I'm on Facebook at Edward Willett, because I missed the memo about having the same handle for every social media thing. And uh, the World Shapers and Child Press, and then I'm on Instagram at Edward Willett Author.
1: And, and and tell us a little bit. So if someone tunes into your um, podcast, what are they going
2: to get? Uh, they all follow the same format. I talk biography. You know, where did you, where were you born? where did you grow up? how did you get started writing? Um, then we go through the creative process. It usually focuses on a specific book or series, and, you know, it's often the most recent one, but not necessarily. Um, so using that book as an example, but and also talking more general terms, uh, everything from idea generation through planning outlining, you know, which ran, runs the gamut from none to 150-page outlines. That's kind of the range I run into <laughs> on that question. Uh, and then the writing process, do you like to write with a quill pen under a under a tree. So far, nobody suggested that. And then the uh, then the revision process, the editing process, and then at the end, I ask big philosophical questions of why do you write? Why do you think anybody writes as a, like as human beings? Why do we do this? And uh, why science fiction and fantasy in particular? And they typically run an hour. Uh, Orson Scott Card went two hours because he really talks, um, and some have been more like an hour and a half with some of the other more talkative ones. But uh, And I've had, you know, huge names in the field. Uh, I have uh, Laurel K. Hamilton, actually, is coming up this week. Another big name will be this this weekend's episode. Um, And also people who are just starting out. I'm up to pushing podcast 100. And I'm just debating whether I'm going to call it quits at that point or if I'll carry on. Um, I'll probably carry on. (laughs) It's, It's less work. I quit doing full transcripts. I had full transcripts for a while and that. That was a lot of work, even automated transcripts. So I, I've kind of pulled back from that, and that makes it easier to do the, the podcast. Yeah.
3: Well, I just have to ask this. Uh, you know, you mentioned having a cat, and I'm looking for tips. You know, how do you get any writing done with a cat in the house?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ours is very non-obtrusive. He's, he, he only occasionally jumps on my lap hmm. um, when I'm writing. Just He'll come in just to see if I'm here. But otherwise, he's not one of those that, that has to be on your lap when you're doing things. So That's good. Uh, yeah. He's <laughs> he's not disruptive at all. And uh, the great thing about him is he's actually a publishing-related cat. He's actually the nephew of the cat that belongs to Betsy Wolheim, who's one of the publishers of Daw books, oh, Sheila wow. Gilbert and Betsy Wolheim. And she actually got him for me or found him for me from her breeder down in uh, West Virginia. And I actually flew to New Jersey and stayed with uh, Sheila Gilbert and um, – Betsy and her copy editor drove down and picked up this kitten and brought him back in a snowstorm to New Jersey. So <laughs> he's actually a publishing cat.
3: <laughs> wow, that's great.
1: How did the pandemic affect you or did it? I mean, as in your writing. And, and, and I ask this question a lot as in, did it make, um, do you think it made some of your writing darker? Did, does it seep in somehow when there's weird things going on around in the world?
2: Um, not that I've noticed. What I noticed was that I found it because of not getting out to my usual writing haunts. I did find that I was procrastinating more than I should have on this last book. So I did for some reason struggle with uh, this last book for a dog, but I don't think it had anything to do with the pandemic. I think as, you know, as far as the impact on my mental health or anything like that, um, it actually, when it first happened, I was writer in residence at the Saskatoon Public Library. So I was going up, it's about a two and a half hour drive from here. I was going up uh, once a week and I'd stay overnight and I met with authors at the library and then, you know, helped them with their writing. And so for the last two and a half months of that, it became virtual, uh, which worked fine. And actually, from my point of view, was a, a salary boost because I didn't have the trip up to Saskatoon and staying in a hotel one night a week. I was just doing the same work, and now I didn't have any expenses. So when it first hit, certainly it certainly didn't really affect what I was mainly doing at that time uh, too much at all. But, yeah, it is true that I was not my usual rapid writer self there for a few months, and maybe there was something related to the pandemic happening there that I didn't quite grasp.
1: Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how many people, how many writers are going to look back 10 years or 20 years from now at some of what they did and realized that there was, it had some influence on in
2: what they were writing. My first, uh, anthology that I mentioned, the shapers of worlds has a story in it by Sean and That's very pandemic influence. It's a very grim little story.
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Predicting the future. Um, anybody you want
1: to work with that you haven't worked with yet?
2: um, I've never duetted—that's not the word—collaborated. Oh. with anybody? Um, just not something I've you like, or never? It's just never come up. It's just I've never co-written anything with anybody, um, and it's partly because, although I get to a few conventions, I'm certainly not plugged into the convention scene. I'm not really plugged into, you know. I I, I meet these writers once in a while, but I I still feel, even though it's not the same as it once was, that living here in Saskatchewan, I think there might be, you know, five science fiction writers or something, (laughs) maybe fewer, I don't know. Uh, And it's just, uh, it's it's that little bit of distance, I think. So, uh, you know, I'm open, as again, I'm open. I'm open to suggestions and offers.
1: Hmm. And you got one book you write under a pseudonym, or or maybe
2: a few books. Two, actually, three. What
1: what was the purpose of that? Do you find... Yeah, what's the purpose?
2: Uh, it was not my decision. Um, mm. the, uh, my first three books, okay, my first two books for Daw, well, no, my first three books. The first one I picked up from some somewhere else. I didn't write it for Daw. My first three books were, were science fiction. And uh, then they said, well, you know, uh, fantasy is selling better right now. Why don't you try fantasy? But we want you to write it under a new name because I'm changing genres uh, and it's a fresh start in the marketplace, so I became e c. Blake, which is my initials, uh, and Blake is my uh, nephew's middle name. My mother suggested that, and if your mother suggested, well of course that was my that was my <laughs> pseudonym. Um, and so I became e c and also the book has a fifteen year old female protagonist, and initials give the possibility that it's a woman writing, if anybody cares. <laughs> it was never really trying to pretend that I was a woman, but it kind of left that that there. So I was E.C. Blake for that trilogy, and then I went in a completely different direction for the next book, and it was more of an adult epic standalone fantasy. So I became Lee Arthur Chain, which is the middle names of my two older brothers and myself. And uh, then I got back to being Edward Willett. So it was just a marketing decision on the part of uh, the publisher. Hmm. The only other, I do have one other pseudonym, but that was a house name, so it's like, you know, a uh, bunch of authors writing under one name for a, a long series, and that was for a, a kid's series called Beast Force. Mm.
1: Kind of sounded like you were running from the law or something. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know. So I just, you know, thought I'd see. I mean, that
2: could I be got, you know. On uh, on Twitter, you know, you get a notification of somebody's following you. Sometimes, and I got one once that said, "Regina, police are now following you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're on to you now. They they know <laughs> this is this is the elusive." Cat burglar or something—I don't know.
2: Anyway, probably explains that car that keeps tagging me when I'm walking through the streets of Regina.
1: Yeah, I'm <laughs> telling you, MK Ultra—they're after you. Anyway, well, now we're going to have everything linked up to our website, of course, so people listening can do one click and find you. And uh, it's been an honor. It's been a thrill. And um, thank you very much. Um, our our guest, his latest book is called Star Song, and it's Edward Willett this week. Um,
2: Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Edward.
0: Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews.
2: To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go
1: to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. (laughs) www.houseofmysteryradio.com
2: i been completed. The end. By George, he's got it. It is the end.
0: I'll see you.
2: If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production
0: of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.